Let's turn now in the Holy Scriptures to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read the whole chapter. Our text is verses 14 through 19. 14 through 19, so pay a special attention to those verses. I'm not going to read them again. Ephesians 3. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore, in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. And now our text. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the end of our text, but two more verses. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Beloved congregation, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the text that we consider tonight from the Word of God concerns a prayer that the Apostle makes to God for the church at Ephesus. That he's talking about prayer is evident when he speaks of bowing his knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, bowing the knees or bowing the head, or the heart, is the common way that Christians pray. It is the universal expression among Christians of their humility and servitude of God as their God, their Lord, and their Master. So it's about prayer. Now the text is not the prayer as such. It's not the prayer itself. Rather, the text is the apostle telling the church that he prays for them. He's informing them that he prays and about what he prays. That's significant. In fact, this is the second time the apostle has done that. 
to the church at Ephesus. The first time occurs in chapter 1, verses 16 and following, where he tells the church that he ceases not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then he goes on to tell them what he prays, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. This fact that twice now the apostle informs the church that he is praying for them and the contents of that prayer is significant. In the first place, it shows that prayer is important. There is a good reason why the Heidelberg Catechism says that of the good works that characterize the life of the child of God, the chief of them, the chief of them, the chief is prayer. Prayer. In fact, take note that it's especially important with regard to the Holy Spirit. For this is twice now that he has informed them that what he prays for is the Spirit. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And then in our text, again, he prays about the spirit and for the spirit. That too is found in our Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 116. God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who are thankful for them and pray for them continually. Secondly, this shows that the main duty of the minister of the gospel is to pray for his congregation. There are many duties of a minister, and my guess is that if I asked you, what's the main duty of the minister, you would say, preaching, and I would grant that to you. Preaching, after all, is the chief means of grace, but it is interesting and significant that when our church order sets forth the duties of a minister, and there's a separate Lord's Day for that, if you want to know what a minister ought to be doing, simply look at that article. And the very first thing that's listed is prayer. Prayer. The office, notice even what it says, the office of the minister is to continue in prayer. That's Article 16, if you want to look that up. Uh, Thirdly, this fact, namely the apostle informing them about these things, shows that it's important for the church to know these things. It's important for the church to know that the minister, and in fact also the elders, are praying for them. And if you doubt that, you should ask them. Now, why is that? Well, that's interesting. Partly from what I already said. It's a reminder of the importance of prayer and the duty of the minister. But there's more than that. Number one, it reminds the congregation that they are always in the mind of the minister, that the mind of the minister is on them. It's not on all kinds of other things, but his mind is singularly focused on them so that even when he's absent from them, even if they don't see him throughout the week, even if he's gone, that they are being brought before the Lord in prayer. It's encouraging. Not only that, but it's a reminder that all of our needs are supplied by God. If the minister is praying for the congregation and needs to do that, and then informs the congregation, one reason is to remind the congregation that all of our needs are met through prayer. Now, This is also the second time the apostle tells them that he prays for the Spirit, as I said, and even for the Spirit of strength. Now, the first time, that might not be so clear. He says that he prays for the Spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding, that their understanding may be enlightened, and then he gives three reasons why he makes that prayer. And if you look at them, the most important reason is the last one that he gives in chapter 1, which is that they have their understanding and their wisdom increased so that they might know the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. That emphasis there is the apostle's way of saying, 
I have been praying with regard to your understanding and your knowledge and your wisdom so that you know the exceeding greatness of God's power, that he works in you by his power. And now he does it again. Only this time, he gets right to the point. He doesn't pray for the spirit of wisdom and knowledge and understanding, even though it's the same spirit. He prays directly about the spirit and for only one reason. He says very directly that his prayer is this. This is his one prayer. That you be strengthened with might. That is strengthened mightily by his spirit in the inward man. Consider with me that this evening. Strengthened mightily by his spirit. Strengthened mightily by his spirit. We look in the first place at the prayer. Then in the second place uh, we look at the purpose. And finally the certainty of that. First, the prayer. The prayer that the apostle makes for the church of Ephesus is really the prayer that every minister ought to make for their church and that we ought to be making with regard to ourselves. That's the idea here. And notice that his prayer is, in the first place, that the church be strengthened with might or power. As I said, you may put it this way, that we be strengthened mightily or powerfully. He stacks up the words, as he did in chapter 1, with regard to power to make his point. So this is about strength or power, or strength and power. Mighty strength, powerful strength. Now this has been a subject that the apostle has been talking about frequently in this book thus far. If you look before chapter 3, those two chapters, you're going to see that he speaks to directly, he speaks about might or power or strength six times. And he alludes to it many more times. And then does it again in this chapter. There are at least six references in this chapter to the might or power of God. So if you go back to chapter 1, as I said, he tells them that one of the main reasons that he prayed for them, he prayed for the spirit of wisdom and understanding, is that they might know the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe by the working of his mighty power. And now he brings it up again. And he brings it up with emphasis. And he does so in the context of mentioning it also again in this chapter. What's going on? And the answer is, it's related to the main theme of the book. The main theme of this book is found in chapter 1, verse 3, where the apostle blesses the church, and he's blessing them, and he calls them the church that is blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. In other words, the theme of the book is about the blessedness of the church. You may think of it as the beauty and the glory of the church as the bride of Christ. That's what this book is all about. It's the book that looks at the church as the bride and body of Christ, and it sets forth the loveliness and the glory, the beauty of the church in connection with Christ. That's the heavenly blessings, and their source, of course, is Christ, and all this is due to its connection to Christ. Now, I said strength is related to that. And that should be obvious. For who is the church? What is the church? And the answer is the church are a bunch of people that have their origins in the world. Sinners, depraved, ungodly, haters of God and man. The apostle is going to set forth the fact that they're dead, dead, stone dead in trespasses in sins. They're ignorant, they're blind, they're deaf, they're dumb. They're ugly, they're fornicators, adulterers. And that now, those people, and keep in mind now the great mystery that's hidden in this book and revealed in this book is that the Gentiles will be included. And that's another way of saying God is going to form a church of the most corrupt people on the face of the earth. Gentiles. Gentiles. The uncircumcised. 
those cast off and rejected by God throughout the whole Old Testament. That takes power. It takes the power of God to bless the church with blessings in heavenly places. And the second connection to that main theme of power is that one of the blessings itself is power. In other words, it doesn't just take the power of God to grant these and give these, but it's going to take God actually giving the church his power. So there's the context. Now, strength or power is one of the most, if not the most desirable of qualities or virtues. And that, among us, even with regard to earthly strength and power, if you consider what power and strength is, then you will understand why it's so desirable. But simply look at it. How much money and time is spent to become strong and powerful? How much time and money will we spend to watch people and cheer people on who are strong and powerful? You would much prefer to live in a building that's strong rather than weak. And you would much rather live in a country that had a very, very strong military and strong, mighty in resources. Why? Because that country is going to last. It's going to be the kind of place that you live. It's going to be at peace. So it's a very desirable quality among men. Now, why is that? And the answer is because strength or power is the ability to do something. It's the ability to accomplish something. It's the ability to get something done. In fact, that's how you measure power. We talk about a car engine being so many horsepower. And that measurement comes from typically what a horse could get done. How much could a horse plow? How much power is actually in the typical horse? How much is expended in its muscles when it runs or it plows or it carries a wagon? And then you take that measurement and you apply it to this engine. You see, strength or power is the ability to get something done, to accomplish something. And wherever you find it, there will be a, a measurement of some kind that measures that. How much power are in the legs of that man? Let's measure how high he can jump. How much power or strength is in the core muscles and the arms of that individual? Let's see how much weight they can lift and how many times? How much power, how much strength is in that power plant? Let's go calculate how many houses it can power. Now, strength or power is really desired and really valued because it's the power or ability to get something done against resistance. You see, resistance is why we desire power. Resistance is why we desire strength. If there were no resistance, you wouldn't need any power. Resistance is the issue, and there's all kinds of resistance in the world. Things that are against us that require power to overcome. You see, there's gravity. Now, it doesn't take anything. It doesn't take any power whatsoever to send a car downhill. You just push it, and down it goes. doesn't need any power at all. It could have the engine off. But to go up that hill, because of the resistance of gravity and other resistance, you need power, lots of it. Why do we desire to live 
in a country with a strong military and strong leaders? And the answer is because there's resistance. There's enemies. There's enemies that want to take your resources. There's enemies that want to take your land. There's resistance. And this is the issue. We, we desire power because we have resistance. We get tired. We get weak. It's not just necessarily gravity, but it's age. That's the issue, you see. Whenever there's a desire for power, there's a desire for power because somebody wants to get something done. Somebody wants to get something accomplished, and there's resistance. And the greater the resistance, the more the resistance, the more strength or power is needed and desired. A man that was plowing his field with just a horse. That's all he needed to pull that plow. But now you're going to pull ten plows. You need a whole lot more horsepower, don't you? Now, I said the apostle was emphasizing strength and power and the mightiness of this power. The extreme nature of this power. In fact, he's going to go on to talk about the exceedingly abundant power the power of God to do more than we ask or think. And you have to ask yourself, what is it that requires that kind of power? Or to put it another way, if you understand the resistance, the great resistance, you'll understand what kind of power is needed. And this is where we often fail and why the apostle is bringing this up. If you would ask us, If you would ask me or ask yourself without our understanding being open, without looking at the scriptures, without knowing the way it really is, we would say to ourselves, it doesn't require really any power to be saved. Or, I already have those powers. They're found in me. I have the power to be saved. I have the power to save myself. Or all the power I need is power against earthly forces. That's the real issue here And the apostle is saying, not so subtly, you have no idea what kind of power you need to be blessed, to be a church, to be what God wants you to be. So I'm praying that you be strengthened mightily. Now, what's the resistance? And the answer is the two greatest powers in the world. They are not gravity. They are not armies. They're not nuclear. They're simply sin and death. Those are the two greatest powers and forces in the world that create the greatest resistance and why you need the greatest possible strength. No man has overcome the power of sin, except Jesus Christ, of course. The power of sin has infected every single human being that's ever lived and infected them in their heart, in their mind, in their soul, and in their strength. That sin makes every single human being resist God. To resist God in their heart and in their mind and in their soul and with all their strength. And no one No human being can overcome it. The Bible makes that so perfectly clear that the apostle reminds us in this book frequently that we are dead in sins. That's the way of saying you have no power with regard to sin. None whatsoever. Even as a dead person has no power, you have no power with regard to sin. Then, exactly because the apostle uses that term with regard to sin, he has in mind the great resistance of death. If you have no power against sin, you have no power against death because death is the wages of sin. And here keep in mind that death is a physical thing. It's a spiritual entity, but it affects us physically, does it not? Why is it that we human beings desire even earthly strength and power? And the answer is death. It's death 
that offers up resistance in our body, that makes us sick, that makes us tired, that makes us weary, that makes us want power. But it's because a man has no power over sin that he has no power over death either. You can spend all kinds of time and money on your body pumping iron and doing athletics. You will not win over death. Death takes every single human being that has ever lived. And it is the two, one of the two greatest powers in all the world. So the apostle prays that they be strengthened with might or strengthened mightily or strengthened with great, great power. And by repetition, he's emphasizing the need for the mightiest of strength, the most powerful power to overcome these two resistance, sin and death. And now, you know why, or it ought not surprise you, that this is exactly what the apostle has been talking about. When we read chapter 3, the apostle said, I wrote a four about these things. I told you a few things. He's talking about what he wrote in the first two chapters. And what did he write in the two chapters? And the answer is, he was explaining the power of God. And the first is, we need the power of God that can raise us from the dead. This strength that he prays for, in other words, is a power to raise from the dead. In chapter 1, verse 16, when he says, I pray for this, that you might know the exceeding greatness of God's power, he gives an example. And the example that he gives of this power is the power that he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. If you want to know the kind of power you need, it's the power that raised Christ from the dead power. And then the power that God gave to Christ when he set him in heavenly places and gave him power over every principality, every dominion in heaven and earth, and that includes sin and death. He put all things under his feet. That's the example the apostle gives. And then in chapter 2, he opens with one more. And it follows from the first. And when we read that, what we have to think is, he's talking about God's power. The same power by which he raised Christ from the dead. What power is that? And you hath he quickened. In other words, you, you he has raised from the dead. He has quickened you who were dead in trespasses in sin, where in time past you walked this way. Now you walk this way. That first of all. He mentions that. In fact, right now it's worth pointing out that the context, that's the context of the well-known passage which says, by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Remember the context of that passage about the grace of God saving us is the great power of God. In fact, I'll read it to you. But God who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. You may place that word grace with the word power. As we're going to see, it refers to the same thing. We need power that turns us from being the enemies of God to his friends. The power whereby, as the Apostle Paul is going to explain, that we are built into one body and one house of God. That's chapter 2, verse 16. It is the power by which God calls former enemies like himself. Notice that. Did you see that? Paul's saying, if you want to know about this power, look at me. I am the least of the saints. And he means that. You shouldn't take that on your lips. There's one least of all the saints. It's Paul. And he knows it. He's the one saint 
who persecuted the church. And God says he called me an enemy, truly an enemy, to preach the gospel. Did you notice how he did that? He did that by the effectual working of his power. That's what Paul says. So that's what he's praying for. Now, more specifically, the apostle prays that the church be strengthened in the inward man by his spirit. So there's strength and power, and now in the inward man by his spirit. Now, the inward man refers to the location or the place that God strengthens us, even like you would desire to be strengthened in your biceps, or you want this to be strengthened in the engine compartment of your car. So also he is praying that you be strengthened in the inward man. Now the inward man, you have to understand, is in distinction from the outward man. What's the outward man? Well that, the Bible says, is your flesh. That's Romans 2 verse 28. The outward man is our physical being in which we are born, in which we live our life It's the physical part of us that is dependent upon the earth. And you may include in here your fleshly soul. Your soul is fleshly too. It's dependent upon this earth. It thinks in earthly terms. That's all that belongs to the outward man. Now the inward man refers to our heart. It refers to our spiritual aspect and the spiritual aspect that just like the outward man stands in relationship to the earth, it's the part of us that stands in relationship to God. There's a connection to God in the heart and it's there with every single individual. The apostle Peter calls it the hidden man of the heart. The heart is the core. It is the center. It is the most important of our spiritual organs. Even as we have core muscles, there is the core of us spiritually, which is our heart. It's where we know things spiritual. It's where we have an attitude toward things spiritual, where we will or desire things spiritual. It's where we have joy or sadness with regard to things spiritual. And now by spiritual, I mean with regard to God, to be more specific. It is in the heart where we stand in relationship to God. It's where we stand in relationship before God, either as guilty or innocent. And where we live before God, either willing and doing His will or our own. That's the heart. Proof that he's talking about the heart with the inward man, he goes on to say that one effect of being strengthened with might in the inner man is that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. Verse 17, that's because the heart refers to the inner man and the inner man to the heart. This teaches us all by itself the relative importance of the inward man to the outward man. And the strengthening of the inward man with regard to the outward man. We are naturally most concerned about the outward man. That's what we want to be strong. That's what we want to be happy. That's what we want to live long. But because of sin, Scripture says, the outward man must perish. 2 Corinthians 4.16 You see, to overcome sin and death, and the real resistance against us, is in the heart. If we are to overcome sin and death, something must first happen to the heart. Why? Because all sin originates in the inward man. It is in the inward man that we stand in relationship with God. The outward man is controlled by the inward man. The man who is a rebel before God in his heart will behave that way in his Life. So the inward man must be strengthened. Now the prayer is that we be strengthened by his spirit. Notice. Now understand what the apostle is talking about. When he says strengthened by his spirit, he doesn't mean that here is the spirit, this thing called the spirit, and then he brings to you a third thing or a second thing called power. No, the idea is 
The Spirit is the strength. When one receives this Spirit, one receives this strength. And one receives this strength, one receives it only in the form of the Spirit. He is that power. That's one reason the apostle prays that they be strengthened. Notice that. Be strengthened. Not strengthen yourself. This power is not found naturally in you. It's not found naturally in me. It's not a power that we can obtain for ourselves by some sort of spiritual exercises. This is a power that comes from outside of you. And it's a power that must be given in you. You must be strengthened. Now the Spirit here is the Spirit of God, the third person of the Holy Trinity. That's the kind of power we're talking about. This is almighty, irresistible, infinite power. This is the Spirit of the Almighty God who created the universe in six days. This is the almighty power of God whereby He continues to uphold and govern all things in the universe. The Spirit is an irresistible power. You can take any resistance there is. The Spirit is stronger than that resistance. He has irresistible power. Stronger than any other power to resist. Why? Because He's the Spirit of God. And this is infinite power. That is, this is power you can use and use and use and use. And it never tires. It never exhausts. It never ends. It's just as there. Just as powerful. Even after a million years. But more than that, this is the spirit of the ascended Christ. Not simply or merely the third person of the Trinity, but the third person of the Trinity is given to Jesus Christ. That's the his there. When it talks about his spirit, the his there is not God. The his there is Christ. Why is that important? Because that's what connects it to grace. This is why... We speak of grace in terms of power. You pray for grace. What are you praying for? You're praying for power. You're not simply praying for God's favorable attitude, but you see grace as a power. Why is grace a power? And the answer is because this spirit of power is the spirit of Christ, and therefore it's the power of grace, God's grace. In other words, it's a power that God does not exercise generally in the creation, but this is the power of God that he exercises only by Christ and through Christ. It's the power of God that he has given to Christ to exercise personally as his own power. It doesn't come any other way. It's not given any other way. And now you know why this power is stronger than sin and death. It's the power of Jesus who died to atone for our sins. And now, since sin no more has the right to rule over us, or for death to take us to hell, that's its power. You understand that? The power of sin and death is, first of all, its right to rule over you. You have no right to be freed from that bondage. You understand that? It's not simply that we lack the power, but we have no right to be delivered from its power. We are in chains. Death is God's just judgment on the sinner. And so Christ must first of all free us from that legal power. And therefore when he imparts it, that's what comes with it. It's also the power of Jesus whereby he was raised from the dead. That's the next point the apostle makes. If you want to see this power, look at Jesus not simply crucified, but raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. In other words, when this power of the Spirit comes to you, it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that's then what it does in you. So he uses the same term. It didn't simply just raise Jesus from the dead. He quickens you who were dead in trespasses and in sin. Now, what's the purpose of all this? The prayer is that ye be strengthened mightily by his spirit in the inward man. Now, why? Why is that necessary? And you could say, well, didn't you just tell us that? This strength is necessary because you're dead in trespasses and sins, and you have to overcome the resistance of death and sin in order to live and live with God. 
then you would be right. But that's not what the apostle says. Well, he does, but he puts it in a bit of code. And he gives really a fourfold purpose, a fourfold need. And understand that when he talks about purpose here, so that, that's the word he uses, that, so that, so that, he's giving the effect of this power. This is what is affected when you have this power. And it's some of the most wonderful things in all of Scripture. They build on one another. So we're going to go through them one by one. The first purpose or effect of this strengthening in the inward man is that Christ dwells in your heart by faith. He puts it in the form of a prayer. I pray for this so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. But you understand that's a reality. When one has that, it's not simply that Christ may dwell there, but he does dwell there. That's the first effect. Why? Well, think about it. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is given to Christ as his own Spirit. So that when one has this Spirit, one has Christ. And if one has Christ... One has the Spirit. And since this is a strengthening in the inward man, Christ now dwells in that individual's heart by faith. That's what he says. May dwell in your heart by faith. It occurs by faith. This tells you why earlier he praised about knowledge. What is faith? Well, faith is the bond of knowledge. It's a bond of knowledge and of trust in God. It's a bond that unites us to Jesus Christ so that we receive him and every blessing of salvation in him. That's Lord's Day 7. And we are strengthened in the inward man by the Spirit giving us faith. And by that faith then we are joined to Christ and joined so closely to Christ that Christ himself dwells in your heart. If you want to know how closely faith joins you to Christ, the answer is Christ is in your heart. How's that for close? And notice... That the reference to the heart teaches us two things. First, it is proof, as I said, that the heart is the inward man. But also, the heart is where you find faith. Faith is a matter of the heart. Because that's where Christ dwells. And that's where you are joined to Christ. That's why this all has to happen there. Now notice, he dwells there. To dwell means that Jesus makes your heart his home. And makes his heart, your heart, his home as friends, as part of your family. That's the idea of dwell. That's covenantal language. To dwell is to live with someone as a friend under the same roof. It's to share meals. It's to share space. It's to share time. It's to walk and talk with one another. That's dwelling. What's going on? Well, the apostle is telling us not so subtly that this is the fulfillment of God's covenant of grace. God's covenant, the promise of God's covenant is his oath that he will be your God and you will be his people. And if you ask, well, what's that mean? The answer is right here. It means... That God will be your God in such a way that he dwells with you. And you will be his people in such a way that you dwell with him. And that promise, that covenant promise is fulfilled when Christ comes to dwell in your heart. Then he is our God and we are his people in the closest possible sense. We are his friends. We are his family. We are even one as the apostle is going to show, as husband and wife, or one as a body and head. Our spirit is his spirit. His mind is our mind. His will is our will. It's an amazing truth that's brought out here in this passage. He dwells in us such that we are made one flesh. He goes on. The second purpose or effect is that we are rooted and grounded in love. Now the apostle here is explaining two things. So first of all, when you receive this strength and are strengthened mightily and we're mad, Christ dwells in your hearts and you are rooted and grounded in love. Now what's that saying? What's he explaining here? Well, first of all, he's saying that God's love is the source of this power. It explains the irresistible strength of this power. If you want to know ultimately why this power is given to you and why it is so strong, 
The answer is God's love. It has something to do with God's love. In fact, God's love is the source. It is the explanation of it. That's what roots and grounds are. Roots and grounds explain the source of things. Roots and grounds are the source of life, the source of strength that the tree even depends upon. He uses that word because you're to think of a tree. And if a tree has deep, deep, strong roots in good soil, then that tree can resist the strongest of winds. It will live a long, long life. Likewise, the strength of a building. You can make a concrete building and steel building, a building that otherwise would be very, very strong, but if you put that on bad ground, you build that building simply on sand, it's coming apart. It's going to break and crack and fall down. Roots and grounds are the source of strength in life. And he's saying now that one of the effects of being strengthened mightily in the Spirit is that you are grounded in the root of love, God's love. And this is exactly, again, something the apostle has explicitly taught. If you go back in the book, one of the themes is not simply the power of God, but that the love of God is the source. Even when he gets to election and predestination, he locates that in the love of God. Why were you chosen? Why were you elected? Because before that, God loved you. In love, he predestinated you. When he gets to the cross, he's going to locate the cross and the redemption of Christ in the love of God. When he gets to the sanctifying power of the Spirit, he locates that in the love of God too. He does this explicitly. And that's why he says what he does here. And that's important. Because it reminds us that your strength Whatever strength and power you have with regard to sin and death is not rooted and grounded in you yourself. It's not even rooted and grounded in your faith. Faith itself is rooted and grounded in something. Faith itself receives something. It sucks something up out of that ground. What is it? The answer is the love of God. That's amazing. Do you connect that. I know you all know that it requires unbelievable God power to save you. You can't save yourself. I can't save myself. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're enemies of God. It takes power. But how many of you see that as the power of God's love? There is a reason why the scriptures say what they do about love. That love is stronger than death. Some of you know that very well. When someone dies, all the connections are broken, aren't they? All the ties are broken. There's no connection with that person except one. Love. God's love is the same way. Now, there's another thing the apostle is teaching here, and that is it roots us into that love. And that's actually the main point. That's the nature of roots and grounds. Roots draw nutrients out of the ground to give life and strengthen the tree. But what happens when that tree becomes stronger? When it becomes, as it were, more alive? What happens? And the answer is the roots grow. Deeper into the ground. It doesn't just simply suck things up, but it causes something to happen to the trees, even in its roots. So those roots go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And the deeper they go, the stronger that tree becomes. That's the figure that's being used here. You grow, in other words, in your love for God. It's not simply that God's love is the source of everything, but there's an effect And the effect is that you are rooted and grounded more firmly and stronger in God's love. And that's the idea. You become stronger and stronger and stronger in your ability to resist sin and death. That's what he's describing here. There's a third effect. 
that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and the depth, the breadth, the length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. That's all one thing. In short, the purpose of God is that we comprehend or know more and more the incredible vastness, the exceeding greatness of this power in every regard. And don't forget, we talk that way, don't we? We talk about love that's deeper than the deepest ocean or higher than the highest mountain. We talk about love in those terms. Well, the Bible did it first. And one of the effects of this power is that we can more and more comprehend it, understand it, know it. This refers to knowing the quality of Christ's love for us, its magnitude, its greatness, its extent. God wants us to know that. God wants us to comprehend that. It's related to the strength. The more you know about God's love, just put it in these terms, it's one thing to know that God elected us. It's an entirely different thing to comprehend the fact that God chose you because he loved you first. Think about that. It's one thing that Christ came to die for your sins. It's another thing that Christ died because God first loved you. And it's important to notice that this is God's purpose. That ye might know. This is God's purpose. I'm making this prayer that you be strengthened because it's God's purpose that you know this. God doesn't give us this kind of power for our own sake. He gives it for his sake. He gives it so that we grow into him. We grow for him. God does not want us to doubt his love, to question his love. God wants us to trust his love to appreciate his love, to praise his love. And this is why we have to emphasize what we are by nature so often. We do that to emphasize the quality, the extent, the breadth, the height of God's love. You can only appreciate when you understand that God loves people that we would never love, not in a million years. We hate our enemies. God loved us when we were yet enemies. We can do nothing for the dead. God does. One more thing to add, lest we misunderstand what it means that Christ dwells in our hearts, that we are one. That we are one with one heart, one soul, one mind. His strength is our strength. His mind is our mind, and that is God gives us this strength personally. In other words, he doesn't give this strength merely broadly to the church as a body, nor does he give it to you in such a way that you don't exercise it, that you yourself are not empowered by it. But I mean God gives this strengthening of the inward man in such a way that you become the subject of that power. Not simply the object. God empowers you. He gives to you something. But you yourself live according to that power. That's evident when he says here that he desires that you know this with all the saints. Now if this was a power that God simply gave to all the saints then there's no need to add that. That would be redundant. He adds that because he's talking about all the saints individually. That's the idea. I'm praying that each and every one of you, every one of you as a child of God whom God loves, be strengthened with might in the inner man personally. Why is that? Well, number one, it's part of the mystery of the covenant. It comes from God. God is a God of one being. One being. There's not three. There's one. But there are three individual persons that say I. Because that's what's necessary to love. You cannot have love with only one person. A person who simply loves themselves is a narcissist. It's gross. It's ugly. That's true even in God. 
God can only love himself rightly because he's three persons. And that's why when God saves us and brings us into that covenant fellowship so that Christ even dwells with our heart, the person remains. God makes me strong. He makes you strong. Why is that? Because he loves you as a person. He doesn't love you simply insofar as you're connected to the body or that he loves the body generally and you just happen to belong to it, but he loves you and he saves you. If God gives us power in such a way that I am not the subject of the actions, for example, that God so empowers me, well, let's be more specific, that God so empowered Noah by faith that he didn't build the ark, then Noah wasn't saved. God strengthens you in the inward man. That's the amazing thing here. That's the amazing thing here. And again, it adds to the mystery, the apostle calls it. It adds to the power. It's one thing to just hook something up to power, isn't it? Things can do amazing things when hooked to power. There are amazing machines in the earth. But now take a dead person, stone dead, and give them power so that that same person who's dead, the person is dead, they get up and they walk and they talk. That's power. He goes on, the fourth purpose is that we are all filled with all the fullness of God. And this is the most amazing of them all. He's building. You may think it's amazing that Christ dwells in your heart. But if you really want to understand the height and the breadth and all that with regard to the love of God and comprehend it, realize that when one is strengthened in the inward man, one is filled with all the fullness of God. Now, what's the fullness of God? What is it that we're filled with? Well, who's dwelling in your heart? Christ is the fullness of God. That's what we read in Scripture. Christ is not the rear end of God. Christ is the fullness of God. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's what we read in the Scriptures, Colossians 2, 9, verse 10. Christ is the fullness of God because he is the Son of God. He is God out of God. He is God in our flesh. He is the perfect image and the full and complete revelation of God so that when Christ dwells in your heart, God dwells there and one is filled with the fullness of God. But there's more. There's more than that. Before we move on, just take note that this purpose follows from having Christ dwell in your heart. That's what it follows from. But to be more specific, the fullness of God is God's love. You have to connect Christ to God's love. You have to connect all these things together. Remember, there's four purposes. That you're filled with this unbelievable power. And the first thing is Christ dwells in your heart. But then he shifts gears and he starts talking about love. That you're rooted and grounded in love and that you might know and comprehend love. And now you're filled with the fullness of God. You have to tie all these things together. And what the apostle is teaching is that the fullness of God is God's love. Specifically, it's God's love for himself in himself as a God of three persons. The fullness of God is that God lives a life of friendship and fellowship in himself. This explains the reference at the very beginning that you may not have noticed, but it is one of the most amazing statements in all of Scripture. When he says, I pray to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. What family? Whose family? The whole family of heaven and earth? Who's, who's that? The answer is, that's God. He's talking about God there. And he calls God a family. Well, of course. God's a God of Father and Son. There's a family. 
God and the Father. God the Father and God the Son. They live a family life of love. But what's the love? Or more correctly, who's the love? And who's the power of that family life? And the answer is the spirit, the personal spirit of God. That's why he's not the daughter. That's why he's not called the wife. But the spirit. He is the spirit of God's power, the spirit of God's love. It's a personal power, a personal spirit. And that's the family life of God. So the apostle goes on to teach this. That when one is filled with the fullness of God by the dwelling of Jesus Christ, one is brought into the fullness of God's own love life. In other words, knowing the love of God isn't something that goes on here. It goes on here. And it's not simply that you love the love of God, but you by this power, are brought into it. You are made one of the family. You become the bride of Christ. You become the brothers and sisters of Christ. I hope that makes the point, because time is getting short. Filled with all the fullness of God means you're brought into the very family life of God. That's the fulfillment of the covenant. See how that ties everything together? Now, what's the certainty of this? And there is a certainty here. The apostle makes this prayer knowing full well this is what God is doing, and this is actually what God has already done. He's explained it to them in the past tense. He's talking to them as those whom he knows God has done this. And yet he prays, which is important all by itself. Even the apostle who has seen this work, who knows it firsthand, who knows it theologically, rightly, continues to pray for this. But now what's the certainty? Well, that's partly the certainty right there. When God begins a work, he finishes it. If God has given you to taste and to know the strength, he will continue to strengthen us like he does many things. You may start out a little, tiny, little acorn tree, and God will transform you into a mighty oak. Baby born, a little baby, but God will transform you into a full adult. That's the mystery that's found in this book. But the certainty is the prayer itself. It's the means that he uses to make the request. God promises to grant such things when we pray for them. This is the means God has appointed to give them. That's the Heidelberg Catechism, right? God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who was sincere, continually ask them of them and are thankful for them. That's the apostle here. The certainty is also in the one to whom we pray, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and his love. What's the certainty here? Well, God to whom you pray. And this is why the apostle begins, for this cause. For this cause. What cause? For this cause. What cause? The cause or fact that he said just a few seconds ago, we have boldness or access with confidence by faith. Verse 12. His confidence is the boldness of faith. And his faith is in God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The certainty is not in himself. The certainty is not really even in the prayer itself. Prayer only has power insofar as God gives it power. And God is pleased to answer. And that God himself has made certain promises with regard to prayer. One of those promises, by the way, with regard to the Spirit, is not according to his will. You pray to be healed and be given earthly strength according to God's will, because it may be as well you die. But when it comes to the Spirit, everything changes. God promises to always answer that prayer. God has already given you that Spirit as an earnest that he will do that. That's something else the Apostle has explained. The certainty you see is in the irresistible Gracious strength of God's love, whereby he knows us, whereby he gives us Jesus Christ, and whereby we belong to Jesus Christ. And so we'll end with that. It's one thing to know the apostles made this prayer, that your ministers make these prayers, your elders make these prayers, but now you pray that. Next time you're on your knees in prayer, just let go of the outward man stuff for a while. 
Let that go. And say, Lord, in your weakness, get on your knees and say, Lord, confidently, boldly, continually go to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, and pray that according to the riches of his grace he might strengthen you mightily by his Spirit in the inward man. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, strengthen us mightily in the inward man, even as we already know that strength. For we are able to comprehend thy love to a degree we desire to know it more and more. O Lord, do so that more and more also Christ may dwell consciously in our hearts, that we are more and more rooted and grounded in love and able to comprehend and to know thy love. O Lord, fulfill thy purpose and thy will, and thus we pray in Jesus' name, amen.